On Rare is a podcast developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions don't necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Bio Pharma. Now we hope you enjoy the podcast. and welcome to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by BridgeBio, a biotech company that is focused on developing treatments for those living with rare disease. I'm your host, Mandy Rorig, a member of the patient advocacy team at BridgeBio. This past year, David Rintel, head of patient advocacy at BridgeBio, and I have had the great pleasure of speaking with so many different doctors, caregivers, loved ones, and people living with some of the rarest conditions. And each and every guest has taught us so many valuable things while sharing their struggles, insights, and their triumphs. Here are some special highlights from 2023, starting with Holly and Beth, two incredible women who became close friends when their husbands were both diagnosed with ALS, a degenerative neurological fatal disorder, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, which impacts the entire family. Here, Holly and Beth share the end of their husband's heartbreaking stories. You know, ALS marches on when you have a tracheostomy and you have a feeding peg, but the rest of your muscles are still deteriorating. And so he got to the point Mm -hmm. where he was having trouble being able to go to the bathroom, but we had two good, really great caregivers (laughs) and me. And then one of them had a family emergency and she had to leave and he was having all these troubles. And I was really concerned about how we were going to manage this. Do we hire a new person and train them how to use the ventilator? And one morning I said to him, I don't know what to do. I'm feeling like we're really, uh, we're really struggling here and I'm not, I, you know, I I don't know what to do. And he looked at me and he said, I'm done. And I was horrified because I felt like what I had said had now prompted him to then say, I'm done. And somehow I was responsible for this, which I'm not, and I have forgiven myself for even feeling that way, but it was really, really hard. And I said, what what do we do? And he said, call the girls. And I said, okay. And and I said, when do you want them to come? And he said, now. And I said, when do you want to turn the ventilator off? And he said, tomorrow. And so that process started and that's what we did. And we had a fabulous 24 hours with him and and we were all there (laughs) in the room. Um, and, um, I would, I would do that again in a heartbeat, you know, um, because what it did for Carl Mm -hmm. was allow him to be in control of his decisions all Mm -hmm. the way to the end. So, um, it was a, it was a really difficult thing to do, but one of the things that I will say is that the, the, I've asked my daughters and we've talked about it many times there was nothing that was left unsaid everything that we wanted to say to each other we got to say to each other because we made sure that that was happening all the way along and then we were able to say our goodbyes and actually be standing in the room and be with him and it's the one thing i would say to people and i've when i talk to people who've talked to me who have als is please make sure that you say everything that you want to say to the person and don't hold back Our end of the story was fast. He was rapidly declining. He was on the vent, but unfortunately, 
I was out on a walk with my daughter. He got up to the bathroom and uh, was doing his usual morning routine, dropped a washcloth apparently, and um, fell over. And I discovered him within an hour of his fall, but he was off his ventilator. So he was unconscious and I would say barely alive. I mean, his, he still had a heartbeat, but he had shallow respirations. The good news was I grabbed his vent, got him on the vent. 911 was called, they came and he had a full cognitive recovery. Um, he was vented for a few days. We thought he was coming home, but he developed pneumonia. And at that point in time, he refused further care. So his time from diagnosis to death was a year and three months. Of course, I've had the what ifs and I should haves and all of the things you would normally do. You know, Chris was given the option of being reintubated and he just said no and opted for us to withdraw um, all of his life support. For our family, the fact that Chris woke up from being unconscious gave us a lot of time for that conversation. Mm. I think what was hard was he was dealing that week with the reality that he was going to die from his disease. But I think it it was an opportunity for all of us to be able to say what we needed to say. I think in, in both of your cases, from my perspective, you were able to convert love into incredible caring. You know, the regret is always that we don't have the power to change the outcome. The strength and vulnerability of Holly and Beth are greatly appreciated, and it's really hard to imagine the heartbreak of an ALS diagnosis. Now we turn to Veronica, mom to Brent, who lives with a rare disease called PECAN, or pantothenate kinase-associated neurodegeneration, a rare disease resulting from a buildup of iron in the brain causing movement and cognitive changes. There is no treatment, and the prognosis for these patients is dire. Veronica is such a joy. Here she shares her son's remarkable story of resisting the challenges of PECAN. Veronica, Did the neurologist tell you what to expect in the future? Yes. Um, She said that each day would be worse than the day before. She said that he would lose his ability to walk, that he would need a wheelchair, that eventually he would need a feeding tube, that he may go blind, and that he would have a lot of pain because they have this spasms and dystonia. And not only he would lose his ability to communicate and enjoy and have a good quality of life, but he would also be in a lot of pain because medications cannot totally control. That must have been just a really difficult moment. Yeah. I mean, I still cry. This is back in 2003. Yeah. It's absolutely not what any parent wants to hear. And the neurologist says there wasn't any hope for any treatment or cure. And even for maybe, I would say, a couple of years after that, he didn't progress that much. He was still running, mm-hmm. walking around, riding his bike. Then Brent did start to struggle. He would cry and he would mm-hmm. want to be alone. Yeah. And eventually he would just fall asleep. And then by the time that he woke up, then he was over it and moving on. Yeah. He had those episodes throughout and the first thing, we have to start using a helmet, like a bike helmet, because mm-hmm. you fall a lot. Uh, then a cane, 
he was really against the wheelchair, so we kind of pushed that off as far as we could until we didn't have a choice. When did he start to use a wheelchair? Also in junior high. So during those teenage years, he had a very rapid decline. Um, eventually, we, we did have to get the wheelchair. Yeah. And this is typical of this disorder where people will plateau for a few years and then suddenly yeah. and rapid decline yeah. and then you mm-hmm. may hit another plateau. It's just really unpredictable and it's very different from patient to patient. So he started to use a wheelchair still while he was in junior high. And how how was that for him and for the family? That's a pretty big change. Yes. We were grateful because we really needed it. We had been putting mm. it off. I was concerned because he didn't want to take it to school, but he really needed it. And it was great because I talked to one of his teachers and he devised a plan. (laughs) And that day Mm -hmm. we went and we had a special parking space. It actually happened to be right in front of Brent's first period class. And the teacher was very popular. He was chosen as the best teacher by the students like I don't know how many years in a row so all the kids loved this instructor and mm-hmm. so Brent's teacher came to the car and I brought the wheelchair down and he came and sat on the wheelchair and the other teacher that was in front came running this was all set up already they're starting to do wheelies mm. and one was pushing in the other and brent was cracking mm. up he was still in the van and he was laughing and all the kids in his class were laughing and then there were the teachers that start switching and one was sitting and the other one was pushing <laughs> and after that then they're done mm-hmm. so they came and you know Brent sat down and that was it. And wow. then the kids were like, I want to push him. I want to push him. <laughs> it's so heartwarming to hear that his teachers and his classmates participated in helping Brent feel better about using the wheelchair and making it special. And That transition, yeah. yes. Of course, high school is another challenging time in life. And what was that like for him and the family? Um, it was a great experience, actually. He had an IEP. Mm-hmm. And the school um, was thinking that maybe he should go to a different school that had a better program for severely handicapped children. He would have more support there. But he was adamant that he wanted to go with his friends. And they gave him one-on-one aid for high school that was with him the entire time, taking notes for him and pushing him around because he didn't want a power wheelchair. He accepted the manual, but he Mm. also didn't have the strength to push himself around campus. So, Mm -hmm. and it was great. He, you know, he went with the same Mm. kids from junior high. So everybody Mm -hmm. knew him. And in fact, you know, teachers were telling me he's one of the most popular guys in the school. (laughs) And it's a big school. (laughs) His class were like 800. Uh, So everybody knew him on campus and everybody was nice. And he had his days, difficult days, but it was a great experience. And he has very fond memories of those years in high school. Can I add one more thing? Because I'm very proud of this, but one of the concerns was that he would lose his speech and those surprises that life has in store for you. Sometimes they're bad, but sometimes they're good. He ended up giving one of the valedictorian speeches when he graduated from high school. Uh, Yeah. So... What a turn of events. So he fought back against having a program designed around his disability, and he landed up with a program that emphasized his ability, which is really beautiful. Yes. I never thought about it that way, but that is just exactly what happened. 
Beyond his high school valedictorian speech, Brent also started a gelato business. When life gives you lemons, you make lemon gelato, and it sounds delicious, Brent. Next, David speaks with Kristen, a young woman born with a type of dwarfism called achondroplasia. Kristen tells us about growing up, being bullied, and finding that one special teacher who was and continues to be her champion. I don't ever remember having a conversation with my parents. What I remember as a little girl is being out in public, especially with my mom, Mm. and I love her dearly, and I know that it's probably a generational thing, but we would be out in public and someone would stare and she would just get really offended. And so I would kind of take that as, okay, I'm the cause of this. I'm causing her hurt, but we never really talked about it. And so I never really felt comfortable talking to my parents about it. Wasn't really a conversation that we had in terms of like emotions and feelings. And I kind of harbored all of that. And obviously, as I got older, I realized that that was very difficult. There were certain people who tried to encourage me to speak about how I was feeling. And one of those people was my sixth grade teacher, Kelly, who I am still super close with. I do remember one time something was bothering me and I clearly was sad, I guess. And she asked me to stay in from recess. What did I do wrong? I'd never had detention before. And she came in and she was kind of like, Chrissy, what's going on? You know, and I kind of was like, "Mm, what's happening? I just had never talked about my feelings. And I do remember talking to her, not opening up fully, Mm. but enough where I was kind of like, oh, these feelings are meant to be shared. Yeah. But yeah, unfortunately, especially through my childhood, Mm. I hid and did not talk about experiences with bullying, my feelings, you know, living in the face of adversity because things become very hard. As a parent, when you described your mom getting really mad at people who are staring, you know, it sounded to me like she was feeling very protective of you. But I could see also as a child, seeing your mom getting so angry at other people when they look at you and sort of seeing, okay, well, I'm the cause of my mother's pain, having an interpretation that's, you know, very different than how it sounds to me as an adult and completely understandable that you as a child would kind of take that on. And then your conclusion was, I have to reduce their pain, so I'm not going to tell them about troubles that I'm having about this. And we never know what we would do in a circumstance that we're not in. I think a lot of parents would like to have everything be as usual, normal as possible, which I think generationally, as you point out, often means not ever talking about it. I'm really glad to hear about your sixth grade teacher. I just knew that she was a person that I could go to. I mean, we've stayed friends ever since, you know, 1998. And I went on to babysit for her kids. And now her kids are 21, 22, 23 of drinking age. So now when I see them, it's like wow. we eat toast and have a glass of wine together. It's, it's, it's such a special friendship almost more like a sisterhood um, that I value so, so much. And, you know, I don't have a lot of regrets in life, but I do wish that the younger version of myself had chosen to open up more earlier. That would have made my adolescence a lot easier. But I do encourage 
parents nowadays, I work in advocacy and I do a lot with kids who Mm -hmm. have achondroplasia or skeletal dysplasia Mm -hmm. and I'm friends with families. It always amazes me when kids are so willing to open up and talk about how they're feeling. And I always tell parents, I'm like, this is a gift. And even if it's not the parents that the child is willing to open up and talk to, Mm. it's it's Mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like the root of all anger, conflict, the negative feelings that we have is not being heard. So when these kids are just simply heard and and their feelings are validated, it's amazing. You know, the minute someone just says, I hear you, those are very powerful words. Think about your life and the adults who really made a difference, how powerful that can be. And now as an adult, it sounds like you're the Kelly for a lot of kids. That's a really good way to put it. (laughs) I, I think you might be right. Yeah. A true story of paying it forward. It's beautiful to see how Kristen's relationship with her sixth grade teacher, Kelly, has helped pave her way to become an advocate in the chondroplasia community. Now we highlight another story of a fierce and determined advocate. Here, David speaks to another Kristen, mom to son Brady, who was diagnosed with urethropoietic protoporphyria, or EPP. At a very young age, Brady experienced excruciating pain from even the smallest exposure to sunlight. Here is where we first learned the significance of shadow jumping. People are so happy about the sun. People love the sun. Like the first day of spring, and I feel this, when you you put your head to the sun or you just feel that warmth, that is such a beautiful thing. And someone with EPP, it triggers this anxiety. They don't know how to experience the sun. And, and again, mm. that's kind of that, that leap of mind that's really hard for someone without EPP to understand about someone who's yeah. living with that. A typical day for Brady, mind you, he's 18 now. It changes throughout the years. We manage it as a family compared to how he has had to manage it as he grew up and had to become more independent. Um, So a typical day in the life would be he will wake up and he will think about the weather. What is it doing out there? He would plan his day around the sun, around what clothing he will need or have to wear. If he wants to go outside, even a walk in the dog, what path would he take? I mean, it is every single detail. He and others with EPP are just always thinking about it. To navigate a day is protective clothing and avoiding sunlight. I often say Mm -hmm. to people, if you want to try this, it's the shadow jumper challenge. People with EPP are known as shadow jumpers. They jump from safe spot to safe spot or shadow to shadow to find their next safe place. So they go through their life shadow jumping. Try that. Try to avoid visible light. You would not be sitting, uh, David, next to the window. I see you sitting near. You would avoid that at all costs because both goes through windows and it goes through water Mm -hmm. and reflective from water. Uh, Someone living in a city, you would avoid the reflection of tall buildings while also going to the shady side of the street. You would in a classroom. Brady has through lots of help with, you know, meeting with school teachers and a lot of education of school systems and his teachers every year. He can't be near a window. He can't go out for recess like Mm -hmm. a normal child. Uh, If there's a fire drill, what's he going to do? How are you going to protect him? Um, A field Mm -hmm. trip is the, I mean, that is all kinds of uh, organization and thought. He would constantly be finding that next safe place. Now, the weather Mm -hmm. is an interesting thing. Brady. It was a bright, sunny day. How long could you stand out there? The response would be, it depends. And the same response would be if it was a cloudy day. Have I had exposure the day Mm -hmm. before? 
because it is cumulative. What you plan one day yeah. impacts the next day. And it depends how much visible light you have collected. Mm-hmm. And they have these tricks. You wouldn't know they're doing it, but the tricks they do to get through a day. And I actually recently heard a conversation among I had four people who had EPP together. And later the thing was, hey, do you walk with your palms up? Palms don't aren't impacted. Mm-hmm. The back of their hands are the worst. So they literally walk down the street like this. Or they will, they have their hands in their pocket. They know where the sun is. So their tilt of the head is away from the sun with his Mm -hmm. brothers just walking along the street. They were taught Brady's first point of safety is your shade. No, and I always taught this to teachers. He could stand in front of you, behind you, how he told you about tips and tricks. I've heard the patients like crossing a street, try and stand behind the one pole. (laughs) That's that's a little bit of shade. He had two brothers, one for each hand, and they would hold his hand so they weren't exposed as he crossed a street. And it just made all the difference in navigating this. We hope Brady is enjoying his freshman year at Syracuse University, perfecting his shadow jumping and rooting on the Orangemen who play conveniently inside a dome. Now let's revisit our conversation with Anne and Mike. As you may recall, Anne was born with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease or ADPKD. Anne had her first kidney transplant years ago. Then she learned she would not only need a second kidney transplant, but a new liver as well. A certain percentage of patients that have polycystic kidney develop polycystic liver disease. And unfortunately, I'm one of them. And so all throughout the kidney transplant and all those years that I was on immunosuppressants, my liver started getting bigger. They started telling me that I might need a liver transplant someday. I was floored. I was so shocked. I just couldn't believe it. I never thought that I would even have to be dealing with the liver. I developed a pretty large pregnant looking belly. People often asked me when I was expecting and when I was due, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty maddening. What did they say? It was four to five times. Now having had it removed, it was much bigger than that. We started learning a lot about, all right, what's, what's entailed with a living liver donor. And, you know, they can take a lobe, which regenerates in the, in the donor's body and transplant it in and get a new one. So that was like our mindset, like, oh, maybe we're going to have to gear this up. And I mean, I created a, a, a Facebook page that said, have you, do you have the right lobe? Because they take the right lobe from a donor for Ant. And then, you know, I had it, it was ready to go. And then we had learned that the transplant clinic had said, you're going to have to have a deceased donor because we need the extra length on the portal vein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the portal vein. So you heard that you needed to have a liver from someone who is deceased. Thinking about a, an organ from a living donor and from a deceased well, donor. Deceased donor, you your goal is to get on the list and you have to have an evaluation and you have to be approved. And so we went through that process and you don't know when that's going to happen. You, And it's a funny thing. You know, you're praying for a recovery. You're praying for healing, but it's because someone else loses their life for you to hear mm-hmm. it back. So the gratitude towards a living donor is, you know, you you have that ability to be, oh, thank you so much. They can watch your improvement in life. And then with a deceased donor, yeah. is you want to express that gratitude to the deceased donor's family to say thank you for making that decision. Oh, yes. Yes, really. A liver became available. Luckily, the fact that I needed a liver, the fact that they determined that I needed a new kidney as well because the kidney uh, function started to go go down. You were led to understand that it would be weeks or months until a liver would be identified and also you needed a new kidney. 
Yeah, I was uh, surprised. I thought that I, you know, I just needed a liver. So that was more news when they told me I also needed a kidney. They determined that while they were in there replacing my liver, that it was the best thing mm. to do would be to also give me a new kidney at the same time. So I had the double transplant. Tell us about it, if you would, both of you. I was in the hospital for only six days. I'm on quite a few more yeah. immunosuppressant medications, quite a few. The ones that you take for kidney transplant, you yeah. know, every day you take these for the rest of your life. So it's a process and you get into the routine. But now my medications, I think, are about four times as much as I was on before. So, And do you know anything about the donor? We know that he's a male. We know he was younger than Anne. And, and we think that he was from somewhere in New York. Mm -hmm. Anne wrote a letter to yeah. his family, which you channel it through the yeah. New England, New England donor, donor Services. services. Yeah. They, they tell the donor, yeah. we have yeah. received correspondence from your recipient. Would you like to yeah. have it? Now, they could choose. Yeah. We don't want to hear anything. We don't want to know anything about it. I mean, I don't care where they are. We'll, we'll, we'll drive out there. I mean, yeah. just to say thank you for making that decision in like the most difficult time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's what really hit home. Was as happy as oh, we yeah. were and we were yeah. ecstatic. And we're like, oh, she's got a transplant. Everything went fine. And then you stop and think about it. And you go, but... There's other people on the other end of the spectrum who are dealing with the worst day of their life and they just lost a loved one, but they made this amazing decision to, um, to donate their life. And for us to be able to share with them, like how much that has improved our lives. The more people can understand about this condition and about transplants, I think the better. Yeah. That's my hope. And I just want to say some words of gratitude. The family of your liver and kidney donor had a terrible time in the lives of those family members. They made a decision to give life to someone else. Anne and Mike own a successful real estate company outside of Boston. They have four beautiful children who are young adults, and I'm really happy to report Anne continues to feel healthy, strong, and incredibly grateful. This past year on the podcast, we had the great fortune to speak to not one, but two people living with limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i. Here, David speaks to Lacey, who after being called lazy her whole life due to difficulty walking and running, finally received the diagnosis of LGMD at 16 on the telephone. Her first question to the doctor was, can I have children? And he said no. But she met and married Stuart when she was 20 and became pregnant. And Lacey, did your obstetrician give you any special treatment or care for having limb girdle and muscular dystrophy in pregnancy or talk to you about delivery? No. Actually, he had never had a patient with muscular dystrophy. I had to explain what limb girdle muscular dystrophy mm. was. I knew uh -huh. it would not be a good idea yeah. to have a C-section. Uh, I knew that would affect my core muscles, and I needed to have a vaginal birth. That had to happen. Um, that's what I did. Yeah. It was a very difficult birth. Just remembering that the doctor who diagnosed you said you would never be able to have children, so you showed them wrong. Yes. I just have that personality. Tell me I can't do something, and I'll do it. Just to show you that you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. How many children do you have? Um, I have my stepdaughter, who to me is my, gosh, she's my daughter, my eldest. I birthed uh, two, adopted my niece. Uh -huh. So at that point, I had four and then went on to adopt our son and our other daughter. So we have six. We have six children. Wow. 
So you didn't just show the doctor that he was wrong. Yeah, and at that point, I wasn't even thinking about the doctor. I got on to other, you know, uh, individuals who said, can't be a foster parent if you're disabled. You can't be adopting children if you're disabled. And I'm like, yes, I actually can, and I'm going to. I have to say, I really admire you. Thank you, and I feel bad for Stuart. (laughs) Because when we got married, it was like he's done having children. And it was very important to me that I have a bigger family. Mm -hmm. So much so that, you know, he's ready to get the vasectomy. And I said, well, can I have it in writing that I get to adopt children because I want a bigger family? Bless his soul. Has he come around? He's an amazing father. These kids are so lucky to have him. He has come around, but we would have two more. We had had these children that we were fostering for almost three years. I've had them since they were three, and they were our kids. And um, Stuart Mm -hmm. said, we just can't. He could not do one more. And he made the right decision for the kids and for us, but it was awful. I just can only imagine how terrible that was. Though I've done a lot of damage too. What do you mean? I wouldn't accept the fact, or maybe I just didn't care that with each pregnancy I was going to accelerate the disease. I know that you use a wheelchair now, at least some of the time. So if you could just talk us through what happened with your condition. You know, at this point, my kids are in grade school. Now I needed to go get my heart checked right away and have a breathing test done because it's going to be affecting my diaphragm and my heart. Mm -hmm. And after being scared, not knowing, oh my God, I have four kids. I got all the information I could and realized how difficult it was Mm -hmm. trying to put the pieces together. And that's when Mm -hmm. I um, got on Facebook and Mm -hmm. started um, the Limb Girdle Muscular Dystrophy Tech 2i Facebook group. I just went full speed ahead and that was life-changing because then I got to meet others around the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I just had that yearning from a very young age, a nurturing, wanting my own family. And motherhood means so much to me. When my kids moved out, I'm a strong believer in spread those wings. (laughs) But I felt a big hole in my heart. Like, but I'm not done being a mom. Um, And that's when I decided to become a foster mom. And realized I could keep mothering. There were so many kids out there that needed a mom. And it was a different type of mothering. But boy, it's been a beautiful, beautiful experience. Having children come into our our home who are in trauma. But just to provide that stability for them. And to watch what happens Mm. when you do that for another individual. It's really quite beautiful. Lacey, it seems like you've just had an excess of love in your heart and... Even after your kids grew up, you realized that you still had more. Love in your heart without someone to love isn't enough. Is that what it is, David? Because I could never put my finger quite on that. I don't know. I think it's not love until you love someone. Of course, being loved is really good, but loving. And you know, I'm more comfortable with loving than being loved. Thank you, David, for that. I now understand myself a little better. (laughs) Truly. Also, has always felt like, um, as a human, Mm -hmm. what are we doing? There are so many in need children, and it's our responsibility to help another. A friend of mine made this needlepoint for me, and it's framed when you walk into my house. 
The love in your heart wasn't put there to stay. <clears throat> See, now you have my voice breaking, Amy. You better not put this in the podcast. Love isn't love till it's given away. Thanks, David. You're making me cry. <laughs> We're having a cry fest. Aw, certainly not our first on rare cry fest. David cares so much about each and every guest. It's truly beautiful. Because limb girdle muscular dystrophy is a progressive disorder, those living with LGMD2I have little choice but to adapt to the changes that limit them. This is very true of Dan, who also lives with LGMD2I. When David spoke to Dan, we learned a whole new level of resilience, patience, and gratitude. Here is Dan talking about his tendency to fall and concern for losing his independence. I'm not yet in a wheelchair. I do use a scooter when I'm outside the home. Uh, I walk you know, here at home where I'm very familiar with the surroundings and everything's flat and level. You know, yeah. when I get outside, outside the home, the fear of falling becomes very, very real. Just a, a slight irregularity in the sidewalk yeah. or pavement. And then you, your, your center of gravity gets out in front of you. Oh, and, gosh. And you. So you've had some falls. I have had some falls. Fortunately, I've not broken any bones, but uh, I had one fall where I was getting onto a train. And of course, you know, in a very crowded uh, commuter situation, you know, I was the last person on the train thinking I could get on. And as oh. the door of the train was closing, it knocked me down and I found myself on the floor of the train. Oh my God. Fortunately, there were some big guys that were able to to get me up and standing real quick. Another time I was not so fortunate. I got to my gate, you know, early and was waiting. This was still when I, I was walking through airports. And of course, at the last minute, there's a gate change. And then there's this mad dash of, of oh travelers my. trying to get down to the, the new gate. You know, I very carefully got onto the moving sidewalk and I was, you know, to the side, allowing everybody to move by me. There was a, a large guy and I, I didn't see him coming. What would be just incidental contact to anybody else was enough to send me down onto the, oh. onto the moving sidewalk. And unfortunately, it cut my face open oh. and it was quite, I, quite messy I, and dramatic. Really sorry to hear that. I could just see that. Well, traveling certainly is a challenge. Two months ago, I, I traveled out to Iowa for the Dystroglycanopathy Conference. And it was the first time that I've traveled with my scooter. And uh, it certainly was challenging, but it was nice. I was able to drive my scooter right to the, the door of the plane, was able to then get off the scooter and walk in and sit down. And then they, they moved my scooter down into the, the cargo hold. When it comes time to get off the plane, though, it's a little bit different. This was the first time I had traveled in three years. The minute I sat down in that seat, I immediately realized I'm, I'm not getting up out of this seat on my own for, for anything. And, you know, of course you start thinking, I mean, well, you know, what if there's an emergency? I mean, you know, and, and I'm in the aisle seat and I've got two people to the right of me. They need to get out. Wouldn't want to be in their way. But the, fortunately the airline was very good. They, they got my scooter there in one piece. Yeah. Mine was, was there waiting for me when I got to Iowa and uh, it, it worked out well. How did you eventually get out of your seat, Dan? Everybody got off the plane and I sat there for about 20 minutes, he, you know, overhearing the gossip of the flight crew. And finally, some two large baggage handlers, you know, I, I felt like human cargo and they have a, a center wheelchair that'll fit in the aisle. And then, you know, these two big guys wheeled me out to my scooter that was waiting for me outside the door of the plane. There's so much that we take for granted, like being able to get out of a seat. You, you have to think ahead, you know, if... For any reason, I had to get up and use the restroom. That would have been very, very challenging experience. And you know, one thing I've learned uh, over the years 
is to simply not drink water the day before. You 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 literally just have to to think ahead and deny yourself water the day before so that you don't have to get up and use yeah, the restroom. I'm sure you'll end up being dehydrated and your muscles need water. It really makes travel complicated. The, I happened to be in a, the first clinical trial for LGMD2I. I ended up making 29 trips from Denver to Baltimore in a 36-month period. It was at that time that I really kind of had it all down. You know, you quit drinking water the day before. Oh my God. You know, you get there and of course you have to, you know, rehydrate yourself because the next morning they, they want to draw blood. And, you know, if you're dehydrated, they, they can't draw the blood. Uh, Dan, um, how else is LGMD2I, in addition to travel, affecting your life today? Well, it's a progressive condition. Things continue to get, get harder and harder. I mentioned that I had traveled to Iowa a couple months ago. You know, not only was getting there challenging and whatnot, but the accessibility of the hotel. Even though I had an accessible room with this very soft mattress, I couldn't push up to get up out of bed. And that first morning there, I, I'm not exaggerating, it took me an hour to just get out of bed. You know, I, I, I was questioning whether or not, you know, at what point do I call 911? You know, I mean, but, you know, how embarrassing is that? Fortunately, uh, the conference there were, you know, nothing but people with two eyes. So I was wow. able to talk to a friend of mine's husband and he was nice enough to come help me get out of bed the next few wow. mornings. So it, it, it worked out. You know, after the, the four days of traveling, um, I got home. I couldn't get out of my car. Um. Uh, my muscles were so weak, I, I literally couldn't get out of my car. It, it kind of gives you a little uh, clue as to, to what's going to be coming next. And, and that, that was difficult for me in thinking that what happens you know, when I can no longer get out of my car. My car currently is a tremendous source of independence. I have a lift in there where I can bring my scooter with me and you know, it allows me to go all over the country. There's going to come a day where, okay, I can no longer use the scooter. I'm going to have to get a different car that's, that's wheelchair accessible. Mm -hmm, yeah. I'll overcome that. That, that difficulty. I just have to adapt. Got to be a difficult road to manage. The thing that makes it so difficult is that every time you think that you've adjusted to this new level of progression, things get worse. One way or another, you have to overcome it. You have to adapt and move on. I, th I think that's a, a slogan from the military, adapt and overcome or something to that nature. Yeah, I think it's the Marines, improvise, adapt and overcome. Great motto for living with condition like 2I. I, I think I'm fiercely independent. And, you know, at some point I'm going to have to look outside for extra help. I'm single. I live by myself. You know, I love to cook. I love to eat. But uh, cleaning up the yeah. kitchen is, is getting to be a, a sore spot. It's to a point where I can't do it all on my own, even though I yeah. want to. Yeah. What are your thoughts about the future? You know, the future can be very scary. You know, the idea of losing my independence is, is scary. I, I try to remain hopeful, you know, even though the prognosis of mus muscular dystrophy is scary to live with, certainly is gives me quite a bit of hope, you know, to think that there might be something out there that could even just simply level off the progression. Any last thoughts? Well, look for the blessings. There are blessings that come along with it. They're very often difficult to see, but uh, just simply being here and, and, and chatting with you today, David, I consider a blessing. It's one of the things that I've, I've learned going down this road is to stop yeah. and smell the roses. We found Dan's positivity to be stunning. He is able to adapt and improvise and continue to see the silver lining in the face of life's challenges. It's a great takeaway and reminder to have hope and to always stop and smell the roses.
Speaking of resilience and hope in the face of adversity, our final interview of 2023 was with Jay, who was born with EPP. His story complements what we heard earlier in the year from Kristen about her son, Brady. Here, Jay shares his daily fear and anxiety of having to avoid the sun. In my direct experiences, the bigger issue at hand, the physical pain is obviously not pleasant and is know that you will experience it mm-hmm. if you do something as, as simple as go outside for, for too long. There's definitely this deeper you know, psychological and emotional impact that porphyria has had in my experience. And one interesting kind of peculiarity, I would say, of EPP is that the symptoms are not evident to other people. Generally speaking, I look like anyone else walking down the street, and yet I could be in the midst of a reaction um, or, or I could mm. be fully concentrating on trying to avoid a reaction or getting to a spot of shade out of the sun, those types of things. And so it is a very, uh, mm. very internal disease, I would say. Mm. A lot of the experience of having EPP is about avoiding pain, is about uh, managing the pain while you're around other people or trying to get things done. Anxiety and fear are probably built into the disease, and that's really rooted pretty deeply in the avoidance of pain. Uh, exposure to the sun over the course of my life, you know, 32 years, definitely trains you to be very vigilant about anything that could cause a reaction. And I think there's a lot of anxiety that, in my experience, has, has developed from that. You know, I think it took me a long time to sort of figure out how I could reconcile with, mm-hmm. with the disease that I have. Shame and disgust were probably dominant emotions. I think I saw this uh, not being able to do the things that other kids were doing and sometimes, you know, catching flack for it or being made fun of for it, I think reflected that back on me as Hmm. being less than or not being good enough. As if this was a choice or I'm different than other kids and that makes me less than. Exactly. You know, rationally, it doesn't, of course, doesn't make too much sense. But I think when you're young, it's hard to rationally sort them out. And again, isolating because you live in a society of sun worshippers. Yeah, isolation, the feeling of loneliness was definitely predominant in my experience. You know, think of the first warm, sunny day. For those of us who live in the northern part, people go out to feel that the warm rays of the sun and you, for you, you know, those rays are like poison to you. Right. I mean, in some sense, it's been my mortal enemy for all my life. It's been very odd for me to look at people and imagine what it likes for the sun to feel good, right? It, it has seemed impossible, I think, in a lot of ways uh, that it, it would be something that could be enjoyable. Well, you know, what does that feel like to just, is it just a little bit warm? Is it is it the same thing as sort of being inside and indoor lights you don't even really notice? You know, it's, it's always been hard for me to sort of conceive of what it's like to have the sun on your skin without feeling scared that you're going to experience pain. So Jay, tell us a little bit what your life is like in general. Who are you and what are you up to? Mm. <laughs> I've entered medical school and you know I'm 32 years old and before I came to medicine at a very zigzagging path from coaching college volleyball in my early 20s to working in the business world working in uh, marketing and advertising but I'm also you know a son to two amazing parents and a brother to my older sister Mariel uh, I'd like to think of myself first and foremost as just a, a good family member someone who you know cares a lot about other people and the well-being of other people and I'm someone that I think is deeply curious yeah. about the world and I think you know, a big part of that has been 
my experience mm-hmm. having a chronic illness and having to navigate that, I think, has prompted me to ask a lot of questions about what life is about, what the world is about, how it works, how human biology works, yeah. how nature works, where to find meaning in all of those things as a way to relate to my fellow human beings. That's a lovely answer. And I think what you point out is, you know, when you experience adversity in your life, for better or worse, you learn that, you know, life isn't easy. So it makes you more open and sensitive to what the experiences are of others. And I love that. Thank you. Amy, were you going to say something? She wants you to marry her daughters, (laughs) both of them. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to have you on every podcast that we do, just so you know that... Ah, this reminds me we'll have to check in with Amy to see how that courtship's going. It was really helpful to hear Jay further explain the types of protective clothing that he wears when he goes outside during the day, including long sleeves, gloves, and often a full mask, because even the smallest sliver of skin exposed will cause excruciating pain. Thank you so much for joining me on this 2023 year in review. I hope you enjoyed these on-rare highlights as much as we enjoyed speaking to these strong, resilient, and inspiring people. Many thanks to our producer, Amy Brooks, and to all who make this podcast possible. On behalf of my co-host, David Rintel, I'm Mandy Rorig, and we look forward to many more incredible conversations in 2024. On-rare. On-rare.